Okay, well, again, a very warm welcome uh, to everybody this morning. Now, we're starting a new sermon uh, series uh, this morning. So if you are kind of uh, younger watching this, um, I have sent around a worksheet um, uh, and it has some different things that you can uh, can do. So even Narnians, I know there's a bit of colouring in, in there, um, but there are some questions there that can uh, help you. So please um, have a look at that. And the first colouring in is a treasure chest. Now, you might be wondering why a treasure chest? Well, I want you to imagine that you find a treasure chest. It would be amazing, wouldn't it? But even though you find a treasure chest, you can't find the key. How frustrating would that be? And I think life is often like that. Life has treasure chests of excitement, of promise, but often we can't find the key. And a lot of life is about trying to find these keys. So, for example, how do you make a relationship work? What is the key? Or how do you get over difficulties in a relationship? What is the key? Or the bigger question, is there meaning in life? What is the key? How can I know I'm loved? What is the key? And how can I be truly happy? What is the key? Often we can see treasures of delight, but we don't have the key. Now, I think there is a book in the Old Testament called the Song of Songs. You may have heard it called the Song of Solomon. The Song of Songs, which I think actually is the key to all of those questions. I think the Song of Songs is the key to all of those questions, but there is a problem. We've lost the key to the Song of Songs. We've lost the key to the Song of Songs. So it's a bit ironic. There is a key to the treasure chest, but we've lost the key to the key. Maybe you're confused. Now, I'm not the first person to come up with this illustration. It's nothing new. Back in the ninth century, there was a rabbi, Saidiya, who came up with this illustration of the, the Song of Songs being a treasure of um, delights that we've lost the key to. And because of that, the Song of Songs, I think, is one of the most neglected books in the Bible. It's one of the most embarrassing books in the Bible, and it's probably one of the most debated books in the Bible. Maybe you've never read the Song of Songs, or you've read it and given up on it, or you've read it, read it all the way to the end, but haven't really known what to do with it. Well, we're going to spend every Sunday between now and Easter walking through this book, and I believe it's going to revolutionise our relationships. I think it's going to revolutionise our relationships with one another, with God, and with ourselves. We just need the key to unlock the song. And I think actually the key is in verse 1 of chapter 1. The very first verse of the Song of Songs seems like an insignificant verse, but actually it's hugely significant. Let's have a read together. We're in the Song of Songs. It's in the Old Testament. It's about halfway through your Bible. We're going to look at verse uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 this morning. So let me read uh, Song of Solomon's chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Are you ready? Now, before I get into this, let me put your mind at rest, because I think some of you are slightly nervous at the moment. Um, when I look at the Song of Songs over the next uh, couple of months, I'm going to be candid, but I'll never be crude. So there is adult content, but it will be adolescent appropriate. And I'm going to give it a PG rating. That is pastoral guidance. I've thought about what I'm going to say. I understand that there is both young and old watching this, and I know that there is both married and single watching this. So with that in mind, let me read Song of Songs, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Solomon's Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. 
For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Okay, you ready? Um, my sermon this morning has two halves. In the first half, I want to explain to you how we understand this book. And in the second half, then, I'll introduce you to the main theme of it. So the first half this morning is an invitation to investigate this book together. And we take that just from verse 1, Solomon's Song of Songs. Let me point out a couple of things about this. Firstly, it is a song. This is a song. It's really important to understand that the Song of Songs is one big song. So really, it's a poem set to music. And when it comes to poetry, and when it comes especially to music, often we need to feel before we understand. The understanding of a song comes from the feeling of it. So there can be longing in a piece of classical music or a broken heart behind a country song or depression in a blues song or young love in a pop song. When it comes to songs, the mood is the key to the meaning. The mood is the key to the meaning. And so songs convey feeling. And when it comes to songs and poetry, they can work on multiple layers at the same time. There can be multiple intended meanings. So take one of my favourite songs. One of my favourite songs of all time is a song by Eric Clapton called Tears in Heaven. The song uh, Tears in Heaven by Eric Clapton on one level, and really when Eric Clapton first wrote it, is about the loss of his four-year-old son. It's a tragic story. Living up in a skyscraper, his four-year-old son climbed through the window and fell to his death. But the song isn't just about Eric Clapton's son. For everybody who's heard that song ever since then, it's about grief and loss. But then again, it's not just about grief and loss, it's about hope and longing. Will I see you again in heaven? Will you know my name? That's the hallmark of poetry. That's how songs work. They work on multiple layers. But it's really important when we come to the Bible that we only go for the intended meanings of the author. We can't just make up our, our meanings. We need to find out what did he uh, intend. Now, when you first read the Song of Songs, and I'm sure when I read verses 1 to 4, you, you'll understand that first off, right in your face, is romance. It seems, on first reading, about relationships. And it is, on a first reading, about marriage and the consummation of marriage. And in fact, when you read the Song of Songs, it's going to get a little bit embarrassing. Even this morning, you know, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Boy, Bach! You know, what, what's going on there? Well, let me tell you, even though it's a song, secondly, this will never be smutty. The Song of Songs is never smutty. There's intimate language in there, but it's always within ethical limits. You see, this is a song about two people, Solomon and the Shumanite woman. And it's about them actually getting married. So have a look, verse 4. Take me away with you, let us hurry. This book is about the movement from me to us. The two become one. And even in verse 4 when it says, let the king bring me into his chambers, 
this is this is old language. This isn't kind of the, the 60s and kind of post kind of sexual revolution. No, no. Coming to my chambers is marriage language. This is about two households, two families becoming one. So it's really within ethical bounds. In fact, there's only one refrain in the book of the Song of Songs, only one repeated refrain, and it's this. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. It's the one thing that comes up a time again and again and again. Why? Because the Song of Songs is not smutty. But thirdly, this is a song of Solomon. We know who wrote it, which puts it within the wisdom literature. So Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Job, and the Song of Songs, they're all wisdom literature. Now, elephant in the room, if you know anything about Solomon, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, a thousand different women in his life. He was the Hugh Hefner of his day. So what are we doing having this Hugh Hefner character of his day writing a love song, particularly one that's between one man and one woman? I think what's going on here is this is Solomon in his old age. This is Solomon who has learnt a thing or two. He's realised that God's design is monogamy. One man and one woman. You need to understand that the Bible uses people to teach us lessons who were not perfect. There's only one perfect person in the Bible and that's the Lord Jesus. Everybody else messed up. And so Solomon was someone who tried everything in life. Remember, we saw it in Ecclesiastes. He was a rock star. He was a YouTuber. He was an Instagram influencer of his day. He was even the, the prince in a princess fairy tale. He was all of these things. But by the end of his days, he knew that God's ways were the best ways. God's ways were the best ways. But I don't think... That this song that's not smutty and is of Solomon and wisdom is not Solomon coming to the end of his days and saying, I have realised that monogamy is the way ahead and that is everything. I don't think the Song of Songs has Solomon at the end of his days saying there is a relationship on earth that is the key to all your happiness. I don't think that's the thing at all. I don't think he's saying that is the ultimate key to life. Whilst I do think he's saying that is the best relationship advice, I don't think he's saying it's ultimately the key to life. Otherwise, what about single people? What about widows? What about people caring for partners who can't return love due to ill health? And what about Jesus? He was single. No, no, there's something more going on in this book. You see, what did I say about songs? They have multiple meanings. And so whilst on the first read-through, this is a romance between one man and one woman, I think this is about something deeper. You see, fourthly, this is the Song of Songs. It's an amazing title, isn't it? It's the Song of Songs. It's like that phrase in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies. This is the Bible's way of saying this is the greatest. So this is Solomon's greatest song and this is the Bible's greatest song. So here's a question. Can the ultimate and greatest song of the Bible be about human romance? No. Because the greatest thing in life is not human relationship. That would make it an idol. No, no, no. Human relationships are better within a greater relationship. We must be careful of putting too much hope on a human relationship. 
This is important for married people, divorced people, widows, single people, and courting couples. We need to realise that there is something greater than human relationships that transforms our human relationships. You see, fifthly, this is ultimately about Jesus. Song of Songs is ultimately about Jesus. Now, for the first 1,600 years of the history of the church, this is how people have understood this book. That is, that it has a spiritual meaning. It is, and here's a word for you, allegorical. That is, it is a picture of Christ. So great kind of people from the early church like Oregon and great preachers like Spurgeon have seen this book as ultimately spiritual. Yes, it's about physical relationship, but it's about far more. Now, over the years, I'm going to be honest with you, um, allegorical, pictorial interpretations of the Song of Solomon have gone a little bit fanciful. Some people have written 122 sermons on this book and more. And we do need to be very careful. But we can take a Christ-centred, allegorical, spiritual interpretation of uh, the book. Now, some of you will want to know how I'm landing here. So uh, let me explain to you why I'm landing here. Some of you don't want to know. I'm, I'm really sorry, but let me just explain to you. So, so look, methodology, allegory is in the Bible. You're allowed to do allegory. Uh, in fact, Galatians chapter 4, verse 24 gives us an example. So in Galatians 4, 24, it says this, these things are being taken figuratively. So in Galatians, they're looking at Old Testament history and saying these things are being taken figuratively. It's imagery, it's picture language, it is allegory. And it does it elsewhere. So, for example, um, there's a verse in the New Testament where they pick up on an Old Testament verse which says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading the grain. And it says, what does do not muzzle the ox while it's treading the grain mean? It means pay your pastor well. Now, that is bizarre, but that is allegory. So it is there, but when it comes to that pictorial, allegorical interpretation of the Bible, we can only do it when there's reason to do it. There's reason to do it. And there is in the Song of Songs, because it's Solomon's Song of Songs. Right from verse 4, we see this is the king. This is the king in the line of the Messiah. This is the king who is the picture and the prophecy and the preparation of the king who is to come. At times, Solomon, his father David, were pictures of Christ. Think of David and Goliath. That's not just about a king and an enemy. That's about a king who is the anointed one, who is the preparation of Christ, beating Goliath, who is a picture of Satan's sin and death and the enemies of God. And so, methodology, we can do allegory. But as well, we need to understand that marriage in the Bible is never about itself. Marriage in the Bible is always about something bigger. And God invented marriage, invented marriage, yes, for the good of society, but also invented marriage to represent something greater. We see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Marriage is meant to point beyond itself. So, for example, in the Old Testament, you get a book like Hosea. And in the book of Hosea, God repeatedly says that Israel is a wife to God, who is the husband. And it picks up this marriage theme. It's all the way through Hosea. And the New Testament picks up on it. So, for example, Ephesians chapter 5. Listen to these words from Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives 
as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one who ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Paul flips between physical marriage and spiritual marriage. And Paul teaches us that really marriage is a mysterious representation of the marriage of Jesus and the church. This pictorial language, this allegory and metaphor and representation is all the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the reason it is, is because actually marriage is the meta-narrative of the Bible. That is, the big story of the Bible from Genesis all the way through to Revelation is all about marriage. The Bible starts with a marriage, Adam and Eve coming together. But the Bible also starts with a deep relationship of Jesus walking in the garden with Adam and Eve in a relationship. And the Bible ends with a marriage, the ultimate wedding feast. All the way through the Bible, the big theme is the relationship between God and his people, the marriage. It's all the way throughout the Bible. So I think that when it comes to the Song of Songs, it's the ultimate song. Yes, it's about physical relationship, but more so, it's about the spiritual relationship, the one that Christ wants with the church and therefore with the members of the church, with you and I. Now, when it comes to preaching the Song of Songs, everybody will take a different line on how you do this. So do you preach just physical or just spiritual? Do you preach mainly physical with a little bit of spiritual at the end or mainly spiritual with a little bit of physical? Look, I think you can land anywhere on this and even members of our own church and preachers within our own church will disagree on this and that is fine. Now I'm going to take a position and the reason I'm taking this position is because I think the book is primarily spiritual, I think that's the major focus, but I think it can also teach us a lot about physical relationships. But because this is um, coming to you through a screen uh, and on YouTube and there are children watching this, I'm going to focus on the spiritual. I'm going to focus on um, the spiritual. That's the way I'm going to do it. However, if you want to study the book and learn more about the physical applications of it, can I encourage you to look at one of two books? The first book is this, Sex, Romance and the Glory of God. Sex, Romance and the Glory of God by C.J. Mahaney. He takes a strong opinion that says it's not about the spiritual, it's only about the physical. Um, so if you want to understand a great book about how you can really revolutionise your relationships, uh, then this is a great short little book. But as well, if you want to read a, a kind of commentary along, so each week as I preach you want to read what someone else says from a more physical point of view, then I can highly recommend a commentary that I completely disagree with because he has a different uh, emphasis to me but I still think it's brilliant which is um, the Preaching the Word series The Song of Solomon uh, by uh, Douglas O'Donnell. So if you want to find out how this can be applied um, to physical relationships really practically then this is the book for you. So look I'm encouraging you read these other books make the most of it. Okay that's how we can understand the book I've got 10 minutes left let me come to the second half of my sermon. Um, let me just 
10 minutes to cover verses 2 to 4 to give you an invitation to intimacy. I've invited you to investigate the book with me. I hope you will. Let me now give you an invitation to um, intimacy. Now, verses 2 to 4 probably seem quite odd and over the top, and particularly now that you know I'm going to apply it to Jesus and uh, the church. But I believe that this book shows us a transforming amazing view of our relationship with Christ. Let me read it for you again, okay? Verse 2 to 4. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Now, in this verse... And in these verses, we sense and feel the mood is one of intimacy and invitation, love and longing. That's the feel, that's the mood. There's intimacy, there's an invitation, there's love and there's longing. And it's a shocking start to a book of the Bible, isn't it? I mean, you're straight in. Verse 2 is a verse that as a, as a teenager, I just used to quote humorously, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. I mean, this intimacy is phenomenal. And, and the woman is speaking first, which is very interesting. The woman takes the initiative here. And she is saying, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She's passionate. She's inviting him to intimacy. And she wants to make sure you don't misunderstand. It is kisses, plural, on the mouth. Okay? So this is not your kind of Aunt Jane asking you to kiss her on the cheek. Um, there is an intimacy here. But more than that, verse 4, she wants to go away with him. She wants the me to become an us. She wants the two to become one. But there's far more happening here. There's love and longing. You see, it looks like it's about kissing, but it's not about kissing. Have a look at the word for. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for because this is the why so why does she want to be kissed why because your love is more delightful than wine notice the kisses are not more delightful than wine the love is more that is the key thing and it's not her love for him it's his love for her this is not about her wanting to kiss him so much as him loving her in such a way that she wants to be intimate. And then she goes on and says, and your fragrance is pleasing. Let me just point out, he is not wearing Lynx Africa. There is something about him that smells amazing. So what is this smell? What is so attractive to her? She says in verse 3, your name is like perfume poured out. This is poetry. This is song. It's not so much his perfume as his name. And in the Bible, name is always linked to character. It is who he is. There is something special about this man. And what is it? Verse 4. He is the king. He is the king. No wonder she wants to kiss him. She's being drawn near because she is loved and she is loved by the king. Verses 2 to 4 are the ultimate fairy tale. The ultimate Disney. She is being drawn in. She is being invited to be loved by the king. From Sleeping Beauty to the Frog. <laughs> we all want to be kissed by the king. From one of the Bridgington girls to Meghan Markle. 
we all want in on the royal family. This is the greatest desire inbuilt in all of us and all of those fairy tales, all of those Disney Netflix shows, they all represent and reflect something that's deep down inside of us. We all want to be loved and we all want to be loved by the king. And the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs tells us the king loves us and it is intoxicating. It's intoxicating. See, the Bible story from start to finish, as I said, is a book of marriage, a book of romance, a book of love and longing, a book of an invitation to intimacy. And, and the Bible begins with this marriage scene and then we fall and we, we rebel and we walk away and we're going to see that illustrated in this book. And right at the heart of the Bible, right at its centre, right at the peak of the Bible is, is Jesus. And do you know how Jesus refers to himself? In Matthew chapter 9 and in John chapter 3, he called himself the bridegroom. And when he looks forward to heaven to the last day in Matthew 22 and 25, he called it a wedding banquet. The Bible is about the bridegroom coming and loving us so much that he gives himself up. That's why the pinnacle of the Bible, the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, is a wedding feast. Remember Revelation chapter 19? This is what it says. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Why? For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. The gospel, the Christian message, is ultimately a romance. And it's ultimately a story from start to finish of the Bible, with its height in Christ and its culmination in heaven in the wedding feast, of the King loving you and me, and the bridegroom coming down to die for us. She wants to kiss him because he loves her and he is the king. To kiss, to come towards. That's worship language in the Bible. God is inviting us to intimacy, to long for his love, because in his love he longs for us. Julian Hardiman, who has written a book on the Song of Songs, um, Jesus, lover of my soul, says this. Christ is so infinitely sweet and beautiful and satisfying as to evoke a deep longing and a wild, mad desire. He wants us to love him with all the madness our souls are capable of. Do you feel awkward with this language? Maybe you do. My prayer is over the next couple of months, you'd no longer feel awkward with this. That you would be able to sing with me, Jesus, lover of my soul. Wouldn't it be wonderful to realise that the king of the universe loves us and has given everything for us? That we are invited, as in the words of Psalm 2, to kiss the sun, to draw near, to come under the shadow of his wing, to find rest as he invites us in Matthew 11, and to have God sing over us and quietness with his love. Here's the great news of the Song of Songs. We can invite God into an intimate relationship with us because he invites us into intimacy with him. We can long to be loved by him because he longs 
for us to know his love. Think about this passage. Who is the initiator in verses 2 to 4? It sounds like the woman let him kiss me with her kisses of his mouth, but it's not. Why is she asking? Because he already loves her and his love has been intoxicating like wine, his name like perfume, because he is the king who has come for her. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. This morning, Jesus is inviting you to intimacy. This morning, Jesus is longing for you to know his love. Will you come to him? Maybe for the first time. You'll give your heart to Jesus, realising that he is the lover of your soul. Or maybe you're a Christian and your heart has grown cold. And so maybe afresh you come to him and say, Jesus, lover of my soul, I want to know you more. In this book are the deepest treasures ever. And we're going to unlock them. Look, as we come to a close, I want to encourage you. Every week that I preach on this, I'm going to give you some homework. But it's going to be delightful homework. A spiritual discipline that maybe you haven't experimented or explored before. This week, I want you to experiment and explore with reading an entire book with one prayer. Reading an entire book with one prayer. I want you to read the Song of Songs and have this one prayer. Make your love more delightful than wine. Make your love more delightful than wine. As you read through Song of Songs this week, keep praying, Lord, make your love more delightful than wine. Make your love more delightful than wine. We're going to respond in this series by singing after the sermon. There's an opportunity now to worship the Lord. And so Dominic is going to now lead us as we, ling- as we sing together, O oh, let the, uh, the Son of God surround you.